Hi, this is Dr. Greg Landry, and you're listening to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast, hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. The sports pre-participation exam. Some love it, some hate it. For athletes, it's a nearly annual ritual. But why do we do it? Are we truly doing it the way we should be doing it? What's new from the fifth edition that was released in May of 2019? Have you checked? Is your state using the recommended PPE form and questions? Today on the podcast, I'm joined by the co-editors of the fourth and fifth edition of the sports pre-participation exam, and we'll cover these questions and more. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and you are listening to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. David Bernhardt and Dr. William Roberts. Dr. Bernhardt is a professor of pediatrics, orthopedics, and rehabilitation in the Division of Sports Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. Dr. Bernhardt is the co-director of the UW Primary Care Sports Medicine Fellowship and is the head medical team physician for the UW Athletic Department. He has served as the medical chaperone for the Paralympic experience at the Vancouver Olympic Games in 2010. He enjoys teaching medical students, residents, fellows, and student athletic trainers, and was recently honored by the American Academy of Pediatrics for his lifelong contributions to pediatric sports medicine as the Thomas Schaefer Award winner. He's also one of my mentors, and I'm glad to have him on the program today. Dr. Roberts is a professor, director of the sports medicine program, and vice chair of faculty affairs in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Minnesota Medical School. He is a past president and past foundation president of the American College of Sports Medicine, on the executive board of the International Federation of Sports Medicine, and a charter member of the American Medical Society of Sports Medicine. He serves as an editor or is on the editorial board of numerous journals. He serves as the chair of the Sports Medicine Advisory Committee for the Minnesota State High School League and is a member of the USA Soccer Cup Tournament Sports Medicine Advisory Committee. He has numerous research interests in sports medicine, has authored many research and educational publications, and has presented nationally and internationally on sports medicine topics. Welcome to the podcast, David and Bill. Thanks, Mark. Thank you for having us. I'm very excited to be here tonight. I'm excited to talk to you guys about this. I want to talk first about the emphasis of the PPE. I know it's been an important topic to make sure we don't just think of the PPE as something to satisfy a requirement for sports participation or just that simple box to check off and part of what an athlete has to do. I think we'd all agree that it's helpful not to just pigeonhole thinking of kids as athletes or non-athletes. And I know we've talked about this before, David, and that the components of the PPE are only relevant to an athlete as we do want kids to be both physically active in general, and the concerns we have in the PPE apply to both someone being active recreational as they are competitive. David, can you tackle that one? Sure. I really think the old adage that ACSM first promoted, and I think other organizations have joined in, that exercise is medicine holds true for kids and young adults of all ages. And I try and emphasize this, especially during this pandemic where people are locked inside that If they're having significant issues psychologically, they're relatively sedentary, they're not doing anything to improve their overall health, they have other diseases that may have comorbidities if they don't exercise, that we really want to try and push them to become more physically active and going through some of the PPE screening questions for them to make sure it's safe for them to exercise seems reasonable for that reason alone. And I know this was a big collaborative effort from multiple organizations. There are six major organizations involved with this, but I know that there's other organizations that I think have been involved directly and indirectly. Bill, can you talk about who was involved with this? 
Well, the monograph is is written and the copyright is owned by the, the American Academy of Family Physicians, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American College of Sports Medicine, the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine, the American Orthopedic Society for Sports Medicine, and the American Osteopathic Academy of Sports Medicine. That's the core of the writing group. There's there's two representatives from each organization, plus the two editors, which makes a group of 14. There are uh, some additional guest members from the National Athletic Trainers Association and the uh, National High School Federation to help focus some of the content toward their concerns and members. Then we have some additional contributors that we we will um, bring in ad hoc to help with with special interest areas or areas of expertise that we don't have on the the writing group. It's truly a collaborative effort, and I've always been impressed of how well it seems like we can get everybody on the same page with stuff. Now, obviously, you guys know more than any of us as far as how, how that works behind the scenes. But with the new PPE edition coming from the fourth edition to the fifth edition, what were the significant changes and then additions or even subtractions from the fourth edition, David? I don't know that we subtracted anything that I can think of off the top of my head, but I think there were some gaps that were deficiencies in the fourth edition that really needed to be highlighted. And the two biggest areas that I think were definitely expanded was a lot more information on mental health screening. And I think there's been a big push for that nationally. And we have a basically patient health questionnaire number four with four questions, two related to anxiety and two related to depression that I do get a lot of questions on. And we can talk about that in a minute, along with sections on transgender athletes and then an expansion on a section on athletes with disabilities. Related to the mental health, which I'd like to spend a few minutes on, These four questions, I think, brought the most questions to me when this new version came out in people who did not read the text of actually the monograph, started using the form, and then didn't know what to do with this type of information. So there's four questions that are rated zero to three in terms of symptoms from zero, not at all, to three nearly every day. Those four questions include, are you feeling nervous, anxious, or on edge? not being able to stop or control your worrying. Those are the two anxiety questions. The two depression or mood questions would be little interest or pleasure in doing things and then feeling down, depressed, or hopeless. A sum of greater than or equal to three is considered positive on either subscale. And I think the thing to think about when somebody answers in a positive manner to these questions is that it's not really that much different than if they were to answer yes or no to some of the other questions on the pre-participation monograph, what do we tell people to do? And that's take more history. This is meant to be a screening for possible anxiety or depression. And you you have several options. You could ask the patient open-ended questions and get more detailed history. You could have them fill out a more robust anxiety or depression questionnaire. Or you could say, I need to bring you back to clinic and have a separate visit to discuss that along with definitely assessing their intent to possibly harm themselves or suicidal ideation. But I think you have to do something when people answer positive to these questions more than just shrug your shoulders and say, I don't know what to do. I agree with everything you've said here. Most of us who do primary care, either pediatrics or family medicine with any age group are, are used to these questions because they're a part of, of the intake of every one of my patients that comes into the clinic. 
So for me, it wasn't a, a really a new thing. But I think there are a lot of people, particularly people who have narrowed their practice down to just musculoskeletal care, who were, may have been taken aback by this. But I agree with David. If, if there's a positive response to this, you have to make sure they're not suicidal. And if they're not suicidal, you've got time to bring them back and, and evaluate this. And to me, this isn't you can't participate kind of question. It's more a we need to make sure you're doing okay question and let's get back together after this evaluation is done and really go into this in detail. I think you bring up a good point there, David, too, as far as when you're talking about people had questions about it and they're not looking at the description about it. I, I think way too often, too many people just think of the PPE as, well, what's the new form do? And and they just look at the form, but there's actually a well-thought-out, well-written entire monograph about the reasoning behind all of these things. And I clearly know that there's probably many people who are practicing sports medicine out there, pediatrics, family practice, who have never looked at the actual monograph itself and gone through in detail and understand why each of those parts are there and why those are relevant to the athlete. You know, I would strongly encourage people, and we'll have this in the show notes, the link to the actual pre-participation monograph that's uh, published through the American Academy of Pediatrics. I, I think it's it's a great resource to have. I have it on my shelf. It's a good thing to reference back to. And and it, it certainly was very clarifying for me looking at this when the new things came out as far as why those were there and and why we need to be asking about them. So I think that's that's kind of the deficiency that a lot of people have with that, right? Yes, for sure. I think many people just use the screening questionnaire without looking at the text. And I would encourage people to look at the text, look at the details of why these questions were chosen, expanded descriptions of what to do when people do answer positive, not only for this, but other questions. It is a great reference to have on your shelf. And it's also a great reference to suggest to learners as well, medical students, residents, and fellows. Absolutely. Bill, how about best practices is where we conduct the PPE? We know as sports medicine physicians, all of us at some point have done mass physicals for one reason or another. What's the writing group's recommendation and why is it that recommendation as far as where we conduct the PPE? Well, the, the writing group unanimously uh, endorsed doing the PPE as part of routine uh, health supervision care for all children, uh, sort of beginning around age six or or in that six to 10 range when kids start in sports rather than doing the first one at 14 or 15 when they start high school. We felt that integrating it into the healthcare home along with health supervision visits would allow the provider to have access to the, the past medical history and, and, and potentially for long-term patients know the patient and, and know the history of of concussion or syncope or, or other issues that may be a problem for athletes who are trying to compete at high levels. Although I, I know people do group exams, and and I was actually kind of expecting a, a lot more resistance to the idea of doing of integrating into a, into the health supervision visits. Uh, I didn't feel that in our group there was anybody that objected to that. My bias toward group exams stems from my initial health pre-participation evaluation when I entered the high school program. You know, of course, this was quite a while ago. We had uh, everybody was sent a letter, and we got a letter, and it said, "Show up the high school at this time, and you'll have your physical." And I think it was probably about six o'clock at night, and, and I, I got there, and there were probably 150 boys in the hallway, and 
all of us went through the first room to get our blood pressure and pulse taken. And then, then, then you were shipped into the locker room and everybody stripped down naked. And we walked in a circle uh, with a cup, peed in it, gave it to a lab person, then kept going around through the restroom room and, and through the little anteroom uh, where the doctor was there who put a stethoscope on the universal point at the uh, over the xiphoid, listened to our lungs, heart, and gut at the same time, poked us for a hernia and said, you're fine. And off we went. And how he could hear anything with that nurse's stethoscope and uh, the noise was beyond me. So I've done group exams. I've tried to make them better. And early on in my practice, uh, we were doing 100 a night in our office, running them through stations. And I think we did a reasonable job. I always felt better doing them with my patients in my office, with my staff, people I knew and had the record. And and I I think that's the best model for it for all our, our young athletes out there. I can see why you're an advocate for in the medical home, Bill, after having described that experience of your group exam. <laughs> that, that frightened me a little bit just hearing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Turn your head and cough took on new meaning for me. At for, that, sure. That for sure. For sure. You know, one criticism of the PPE is that there has not been a good amount of great outcomes data to demonstrate the uh, effectiveness of the PPE. David, can you touch on that? And if there's any recommendations as far as ways that maybe the writing committee or you guys have suggested to improve that lack of efficacy? Sure. I'll try and tackle this. This is a hard one to answer. I think the first thing to point out is, and Bill, you definitely can add in because you've been around just slightly longer than I have. I feel honored tonight to share this with you. And then with Mark, it's like three generations of sports medicine here all on one microphone. The hard part about this is that the PPE, I think when it was first developed as this process, for lack of a better description, wasn't really developed with any evidence behind it. It was thought that I think we needed to do something to make sure it was safe to participate in sports and to meet some demands of some state high school organizations from a, quote, liability perspective, unquote. There's really not any outcome data that has shown that this process is really effective in terms of meeting some of its goals, such as reducing the risk of sudden death or preventing injury, even though it's been performed for a long time. If we're on the fifth edition and it's five to 10 years between editions, this has been going on for, you know, at least since I finished my fellowship 25 years ago. However, it is performed from state to state, but not every state requires that Every high school state student athlete go through this in a standardized manner. There's not a standardized form that all states are requiring their providers to use. And there's no depository or repository, I guess, in terms of where to put all this information. So none of the questions have really been put to the test looking at sensitivity or specificity. If you were thinking of this as a true screening exam, like you do a mammogram or prostate-specific antigen or anything like that. So I think there's sort of the good parts of it in terms of the, the public health message that we get out there that all children and adolescents should be active and that they need to do it in a safe manner. And we'll use the history and the physical to screen them, and it'll be part of well-child and well-adolescent care. But until, the, until all the organizations, whether that's clubs, high schools, professional collegiate athletes, organizations all standardize the form they're using, um, I think we're going to be stuck with a really problematic lack of evidence in terms of the process of the PPE. 
and Bill, you can speak to this a little more because I know you've been an advocate for it, but there has been a push towards making it more standardized, even electronic, where families fill out an electronic database that then goes into some sort of you know, central database, and then you can look at what the outcomes are and see if this screening exam is effective and how it could be improved. Yeah, David, this has been an interest of mine for, for quite some time. I, the, the first edition of this monograph came out in 1992, and I was a reviewer for that one. Uh, and then I've been involved either for the second one as a reviewer and kind of behind the scenes editor and the third one as a writer for, as part of the writing groups. And then the fourth and fifth with you as the co-editor. And, and I've always been frustrated by the, the lack of literature supporting the use of this exam. Although I think we have an opportunity now with, with the electronic medical record to use the ICD-10 code for a sports physical which is a Z02.5. Even though most insurance companies don't cover this, so it's a reason to integrate it into the wealth child exam, if everybody would code this either as a sports exam, if that's what they're doing, or in the secondary position, if they're doing it as part of wealth child care uh, or, or health supervision visits, we could over a fairly short period of time across the country develop a, a big database that would show what the immediate results were for the pre-participation exam, and then follow it you know, over five or 10 years and see what the long-term results are for people. And we could then start to compare states that do it every three years to states that do it every two years, to states that do it every year. We could get a lot of evidence to help us decide what to do with this exam. Right now, it's so institutionalized, there's no way to undo it that I can see. I think there's an opportunity with big data to do this or an opportunity to standardize the exam and put it into a de-identified database to look at, at outcomes. To me, it's kind of an exciting time in terms of the, the electronics that are there, but it is, it is frustrating trying to write an evidence-based work like the monograph without much evidence to support what you're doing. And we're going to touch on a little bit later as far as maybe some roadblocks or some barriers to why this is not being more universally adopted. But I think, you know, one thing that we get, I think kids maybe get worried about a little bit is since we don't really necessarily always think of it as an extension of or part of the health supervision visit, a lot of people see it as something separate. I have to get my sports physical and they don't see that in terms and the parents maybe not see that in terms of this is overall for well child care. I think there may be some fear of being disqualified or you're, you're going to fail your sports physical and not be able to participate. Can you talk a little bit, a little bit about that bill about how often someone actually may get disqualified from participation by going through a PPE? Getting fully excluded from activity is, is really rare from what, from what we've from the data we have. Uh, There's a systematic review back in 2000 that looked at over 20,000 exams, and only three athletes were totally excluded from activity. The worry about getting excluded from the exam is is probably not well founded. The worry about getting excluded because you can't get one or you can't afford one, I think, is a much more real worry for me in that when we find something on these exams, it's usually in the history. And it's it's usually there in front of us anyway in the uh, medical record. So I, I'm not sure that that it, it's the most useful exam, but 
if we're going to do it, I think we should try to do the best we can to help the athletes out there uh, have a better experience. I'd echo your concern about the the lack of access as possibly being a barrier to sports or the financial cost. We were fortunate enough in St. Louis here several years ago to get one of the AMSSM humanitarian grants. And one of our projects was is in our, we have a, a school-based health clinic here in one of uh, St. Louis public schools. And we offered uh, pre-participation exams for the students in that school. And, and I had at least two or three families that I remember and recall specifically when we did that, that were so thankful that we offered that because the previous year, their child did not have the ability to participate in sports because they just, they could not afford going to the doctor to get their sports uh, physical. And so they were so gracious that we did that. So I certainly see that as a potential barrier and certainly something that we need to continue to look at. Yeah. The, the high school that's about a mile and a half from the clinic I work out of has 80% free and reduced lunch. And there are kids there who can't get an exam. And the coaches know that if they call me, I'll get them in and I'll do it and I won't charge them or their parents. And I keep a, a separate record on paper that isn't entered into the electronic medical record because we can't, there's there's no way to really do it when we entered into the electronic medical record. But but I try really hard to get those folks, those, those kids examined so they can play. Yeah, I think it's that's one challenge with a lot of the electronic medical records is obviously they're a great way to to bill for things, but it's hard to do things like what you're talking about without or through those mechanisms. I didn't want to get into them being developed as billing machines, but um, <laughs> uh, I'm happy to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we'll leave that for another podcast another sure. time. Sure. David, how effective overall is the PPE as a tool to reduce the likelihood of injury or illness? You know, we have a musculoskeletal screen, obviously our history questions, which with the largest emphasis being placed on the cardiovascular component, we worry about sudden cardiac death and the constant debate about adding other required screening components like the EKG or echoes for evaluations. Those things come to mind. And what do you think about that as far as the likelihood of reducing injury? So if I can just go back to the last question very briefly, um, I think that one point I want to emphasize that Bill touched on at the beginning a little bit is that this is not a binary answer in terms of you're either excluded or not uh, excluded. I think it is truly like Bill suggested that most, but not all, but most athletes will be allowed to participate in some sort of physical activity at the end of the day. And so it's a very, very, very small number that are going to be excluded from absolutely all sports due to some condition that is discovered through the PPE. Back down to the next question that you just asked about how effective is the PPE as a tool to reduce the likelihood of injury or illness, including the cardiac component of the PPE. In terms of a screening, you have to remember it's a history and a physical exam. One of our first fellows at the University of Wisconsin, Jorge Gomez, when he was a fellow, looked at the history and physical exam in terms of musculoskeletal injuries compared to just the history alone and found that 92% of musculoskeletal conditions are likely going to be picked up on history and predict that the patient may be at risk for injury, but it's not necessarily predicted that they will be injured but they are going to suggest that they've had a previous injury that then would predispose them to having problems or have been inadequately rehabilitated from their previous injury, which would make it so they would be temporarily, quote, disqualified or restricted 
while they're undergoing rehab and then fully cleared once they complete their rehab. So I think the history is the key from the MSK. I don't know that there's any specific musculoskeletal condition that a primary care provider is going to be able to do in their office in terms of a MSK physical exam that they're going to be able to do in their office that is definitively going to predict injury and or hold them out of practice or competition. In terms of the cardiac part of this, this debate in terms of is the history and physical exam alone enough in terms of, quote, screening has been going on for a long time. And there are definitely pro-EKG camps and other camps, um, including the present American Heart Association, the AAP, and our monograph, where it's not as enthusiastically endorsed. And I think if you read the text in our monograph, I think it's very balanced in terms of how it's presented. And I think you have to think about it, is it worthwhile to do universal screening related to EKG on every potential person or patient that comes in for a well child or well adolescent visit? Is it worth doing targeted testing based on symptoms? Or should we be really focusing on screening higher risk groups? And I think we presented that in a fairly balanced way. And when you think about the highest risk groups, just so we highlight that, that would be sort of the division one black or Afro-American basketball population more than any other group where you'd think about screening higher risk groups. And beyond that, I think it's really up for debate whether you're going to do universal screening or even targeted. I think everybody agrees targeted screening based on symptoms and taking a detailed history is reasonable. But from a universal screening standpoint, in terms of the number of people that are comfortable reading AKGs using criteria that is sensitive and specific enough, I don't know that anybody agrees with that completely. I make the distinction between screening and case finding. An example would be a, a relatively healthy male of 55 who I do a, a PSA on to see if I can detect prostate cancer versus a 55-year-old male who seems healthy but has got a big lump on his prostate where I'm going, ooh, the, the, the chances of him having something bad here are much higher and I do a PSA. You know that that's two different kinds of groups, and I, I think in terms of screening, the PPE isn't a great screen for really anything, but it is a great opportunity to talk sex, drugs, and rock and roll with kids, particularly the music aspects. But if we can steer somebody in a in a better path with the exam, I think we've accomplished something big. In terms of preventing sudden death, preventing ECL injury, I'm not sure we've got data to support true screening. But we do have, I think, a good case for doing uh, case-finding studies like EKGs in people who are symptomatic. So expanding upon that, Bill, do you think that there are any things that the PPE is well-suited to screen for in someone who's wanting to pursue an active lifestyle? Well, I, I think if you look closely at the questions and pay attention to the, the positive answers, you could make a difference. I think if you listen to the heart every now and then, uh, you'll pick up things like murmurs that weren't there before. All of us have probably know the discovery during an exam of a, of a new murmur that turns out to be aortic stenosis or, or something that could have been a problem had they participated heavily without some intervention. But 
the greatest chance you have of, of dying is during physical activity, and particular heavy physical activity. But people who participate in physical activity really regularly have less chance of dying when they're not active. So, you know, having had kids and now grandkids, and I worry, I realize that probably the most dangerous thing we do day to day is get in the car and drive somewhere. And that going out to run and, and participate with sports, although there is a, a slight risk, it's, it's not that big that, that I would spend the, the time and money to do some of the screening that's suggested. I would direct that dollar toward other things, immunizations, education, good food, healthy food that might make a difference for, for some of the kids who are out there. David, we know that things vary widely from state to state as who is eligible or considered eligible to sign off on a PPE. What's the writing group recommendation for the qualification of someone to be a PPE examiner? I think the writing group feels, and I personally feel, that it is essential to have clinical training in primary care. So you want to have somebody who has the knowledge and expertise to conduct a health supervision visit or well child slash adolescent or well young adult exam or for the professional athletes well adult exam where you can address a broad range of problems and determine medical eligibility. In the state laws vary from state to state and in some states nurse practitioners and PAs can do this and I think that's totally fine. They're very well qualified and have expertise to do this. I believe it's at least 22 states allow chiropractors to do this. And I think that's where it's somewhat more controversial as I don't know that they have that kind of clinical training to deal with all the things that we've discussed in the sports pre-participation part of this, let alone comprehensive care, including what Bill talked about, which layman would be sex, drugs, rock and roll, and medical providers in the medical home may call anticipatory guidance. And then finally, I don't know in the chiropractor home if there's a role for immunization and what I would call record keeping related to immunization so that everybody's on board with what they need and what they've had. Finally, I think it's also difficult or challenging for a chiropractor at times to seek consultation in an efficient manner and figure out when that is appropriate and make sure that the kid is or the young adult is getting to the specialist when they need to. So from our perspective, I think having the necessary clinical training. And although it sounds like I'm being a little bit hard on the chiropractor, I would also suggest that urologists and neurosurgeons and even our orthopedic colleagues aren't really well-trained and, and they would admit it to do pre-participation evaluations because I don't think they've had the training or at least for a long time, they haven't had the training to do some of this anticipatory guidance, know the immunization schedules, let alone screen for cardiac disorders and the like, or even sometimes use a stethoscope. Bill, we're in a we're in the summer now, summer where things are a little bit of chaos thanks to COVID-19. And now's the time that many athletes and their parents are hopeful that sports are going to happen this fall and thinking about their PPEs in terms of satisfying their requirements for their state to participate in high school athletics. What is the typical recommendation as far as when you should actually have your PPE done in relation to the start of a season and, and why is that important? Well, the monograph recommends and has since its inception a that the exam be done at least six weeks before the season. That often creates a rush in people who are conscientious and paying attention uh, on the schedule. And then, then there's the other rush that occurs the day before practice starts when people realize they don't have their exam and, and can't start practicing without it. I've kind of moved to, uh, because I really support the idea of doing this 
as part of your, your health supervision visit that people just do it in their birth month along with their, their health supervision visit. And the physicians integrate the pre-participation questions into the well child exam at whatever interval the state requires. We're hoping that most kids are evaluated uh, six weeks or before. So if we find something, we have a chance to evaluate that finding. Some areas and organizations are really set up to fast track abnormal findings on the exam. And, and others can take a while. You know, if, if you live in, in rural Minnesota, you may have to travel an hour or two or three to get to a center that can do some of the studies. So you have to take into account that you need time to evaluate something that isn't right. And if, if states would line up so that they would allow participation based on an exam that lines up with kids' birthdays instead of the school calendar, we could probably pull this off in a, in a more evenly distributed manner than, than the way it occurs right now. It's funny because I, you know, I, that sounds like a simple solution, but I, I can see all the sports medicine advisory committees and the state organizations for their high school sports throwing up their arms and schools throwing up their arms, just saying, "Well, that's going to create a big mess for record keeping for us." Because I know that that's happened personally here in Missouri when we talked about making a change uh, that we'll discuss in a little bit, going from one year to two years, having uh, eligibility for an extra year based on their their PPE. It, it, again, it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, in the day and age of computers and, and that kind of stuff, it seems like it would be very, very simple. And and we had a pretty great solution here in Missouri. They actually had, they developed a, a database that schools can actually utilize that brought down some of that resistance to the change that they can enter it in. And then it gives them little updated red flags uh, when an athlete is due for their physical again, so they can remind the individual students. And it's only been in place for a year, but I, I think so far it's working pretty well, but it's just, it's thinking outside that box a little bit. I think that that has the potential to make this a much easier process for everyone. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue our discussion about the sports pre-participation exam. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. Editing podcasts can be ugh, rough. Everyone knows that you'll spend at least double the time you use creating the podcast when editing it. Then there's the control freak factor and the gotta get it right the first time. Well, it's time to shove all that out the door and make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. The Editor Core is a talented, experienced team of podcast editors that have edited tens of thousands of hours of podcast content and they're ready for yours now. Check out EditorCore.com because it's time to make your podcast soar. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great, cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. 
Welcome back to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. David Bernhardt and Dr. Bill Roberts, co-editors of the Sports Pre-Participation Exam Monograph, both the fourth and the more current fifth edition from 2019. We're talking through the PPE itself, and as we all know, we're all dealing with COVID. There's certainly unique challenges there. David, can you talk about some other concerns that we have in this kind of very unique summer? We traditionally have done, not that we think it's ideal, but we've traditionally done pre-participation evaluations in a more sort of modified mass session later in the summer to try and help people who are not able to either get into their primary care provider in a timely manner, or more importantly, don't have health insurance, so can't afford it, and then would not be able to play sports because they couldn't get a physical, which Dr. Roberts touched on earlier. And I think you have to remember with COVID, you can't do a modified night or day where you can do bring a whole bunch of people into your clinic at the same time due to the contagiousness of COVID and the restrictions that many of us have in our clinic. And so I think it behooves us to make sure that we message this to everybody, providers and patients, that things are different with COVID. And if your student athlete needs to get a pre-participation evaluation and you're not able to necessarily get an appointment with your primary care provider, or you're not able to afford a PPE, think about solutions that Bill mentioned earlier. Talk to the athletic trainer at your school who likely has contacts with providers in the community who can, quote, squeeze these people into their clinic so that we don't unnecessarily prevent a student athlete from participating in a sports season, assuming they have one this fall because of COVID and the restrictions that it's dealt us in terms of getting kids in like we used to at the last minute. I think all good points there. And I think one of the things that we can talk about now is kind of the frequency of the physical. I know that there are some states that they have decided that they're going to allow PPEs to be eligible for an additional year in light of the fact that we have COVID and it may be difficult for kids to get in. In my state of Missouri here, a year ago, our sports medicine advisory committee recommended allowing our PPEs to be eligible for two years if uh, pediatricians or family practitioners signed off on that. It gave them the option also to just allow it for a year if they felt it was necessary for kids with more chronic issues that they wanted to touch base. But still, obviously, we are encouraging kids to have their annual health supervision visit, but just the sports part would be a two-year process. We had some concerns raised by pediatricians and family practitioners through our state because of that change. It's been used and acceptable in other for years in other states where I've lived. You know, in Wisconsin, I know that that's the case. That's where I participated in high school athletics, and I had two sports physicals during my four years. And I know it's not out of line with the PPE monograph. David, can you talk to us a little bit about how often PPEs should or, or are okay to be conducted? So there's really no hard, fast, evidence-based, research-based guidance that I can give you related to this. There's no outcomes-based data to guide any of the recommendations that are out there. The American Heart Association recommends that every two years, a student athlete should undergo this type of evaluation, including uh, obviously a cardiac history and physical exam. And this is very arbitrary. This assumes that cardiac changes would become detectable at two-year intervals. And I think that's why they make that recommendation. There's really not much evidence to support any other interval recommendation between it being every year or every four years for that matter, to be honest with you. 39 states require it to be done every 12 to 13 months. And four states like it to be done every th- at a 13-month interval because many insurance companies don't necessarily pay for 
a second physical within a 12-month period of time. So I think the majority of states would like it to be done every 12 to 13 months, but I think this is, again, from more of a liability perspective rather than an evidence-based perspective. With the COVID, the National Federation of High Schools did come out with a statement that does grant people extra time to complete that PPE so that if they had one done as a freshman, they can have a history reviewed theoretically by an athletic trainer or school nurse at their school prior to their junior year. And assuming nothing's changed, have things extended for one more year. Unfortunately, or fortunately, some states are still not having to abide by this because this is an this is a state by state sort of guidance that is put forth. And so as an example, the state of Wisconsin, although they agree with that and with the National Federation of High Schools, what they've chosen to say is, yeah, we'll grant that just for the fall sports, not necessarily the winter sports. And it's not meant to say that this can go on forever. They would, in the ideal scenario, they would still like the student athletes to get into the provider's office even during the fall. It really just buys them time to get it completed. And the reason they're doing this, why the high school federation and, and others have made this recommendation is due to COVID and clinical access during the time of COVID where kids possibly couldn't get in to get their well adolescent or well child visits completed. I was surprised there is a survey that was referenced from Bill Hines in from 2017 that it showed only 17 states were using the previous PPE fourth edition monograph uh, recommended physical form. That's that's less than 35% of states in the country. Is there a reason why we can't get this form adopted universally? I know when I came to Missouri in 2004, I, I can't remember exactly what year I started to join the SMAC. I think I've been on it for about 10 years now here. And one of the first things I wanted to get done is to get our to get us to have an adopted adopt the universal PPE form that's recommended from the PPE monograph. And literally right away, I mean, it was it was universally accepted, and we endorsed it, and it became the new standard because that was not what we used. And then we updated it last year when the fifth edition came out. It worked out perfectly because it got released in May, and we were about the time to get things out for our change to the two year eligibility. But are, are there any recommendations that either of you have to help sports medicine providers in states that aren't using it to get it adopted in their state? And I'll start with you, Bill. Well, I think this is mainly a, a political issue, not political like presidency right now, but political in terms of what's been past habit and what are people willing to do and, and how are things determined in a state. So some of these forms are in state law. So that's nearly impossible to change. And others are in, in kind of um, a situation where the, it has to be approved by the board of the league, and, and that's a little easier to change. Uh, we developed a form in Minnesota in around 1990, and then when the first monograph came out in 92, we, we kind of updated it to the 90, to the, that first form that came out. And then we just kind of routinely updated every year so if something new comes out in the literature that makes sense to the committee, we just add a question or subtract a question. And so our, our form isn't exactly PPE for when it was surveyed in 2017. So, you know, are we in that 17th state or not? I don't know. Are the, I think it's, it's either three or four states that use our form in that 17. I'm not sure either. So it may be one of those things that is sort of changed by 
when the survey's done and, and, and whether the forms have been, been updated or changed and aren't exactly the same as they are in the, in the PPE form. One of the advantages of having the form is that it, it becomes a little more standardized around the country and maybe we, we could cross straight lines with it and things like that. One of the advantages of not having it the same is that it becomes a natural experiment if there was a way we could track how different forms perform and how different questions perform. Even when we had a, a form that was very formalized, it wasn't exactly required. So we'd get clearance uh, in medical eligibility recommendations coming on in on napkins and, and notepads and all kinds of things that really weren't very standard. So th there's a lot of problems with how we administer this around the country. And each state is a little bit different. Each state has a little bit different interval. I'm in a three-year state, which means that we're doing about 35,000 exams a year instead of a, about 100,000 a year. So it, it really makes it a little easier to get everybody examined a, a little bit more closely than doing it every year. I know that the three years in Minnesota was chosen arbitrarily. There was no data behind it. It was just somebody asked a doctor what he thought would be a good interval. He said, oh, how about every three years? That, that's what we adopted. That was a, a long time ago. Ah, the lovely evidence base, right? Exactly. David, in the monograph, there is some consideration for the college athlete. Are there anything that we need to be thinking about that we need to do different for a collegiate athlete as opposed to the high school or middle school, grade school athlete? Well, as a team physician for the University of Wisconsin, I can tell you that it is more challenging with the college athlete in that we often do not have the student athlete's electronic medical record accessible because there's different electronic medical records that are out there. So in terms of just from an information gathering, you're not, when they first come as a freshman, you're not there. You haven't been their primary care provider for the last, you know, however, since they were a baby, they're brand new to you. And so you're relying on um, the truthfulness of the patient. And, you, you know, you're, you haven't really established any rapport with this person as they come in. You're also relying on them knowing their medical history and I would argue that many college freshmen, athletes or non-athletes, probably don't have a great understanding of all of their medical history and for sure don't have an understanding of their full family history. So I think from a collegiate standpoint, and probably you experienced this uh, a little bit when you were at the Rams, you have to rely on that, number one. And number two, you're going to have to get more detail than a one-page questionnaire can provide you related to making sure you don't miss anything. So although we don't necessarily use the same history and physical form that's recommended in the monograph at our school, and I would guess many others don't, I think it's likely a much more detailed history and the physical exam part of it may not change much. But that that's really the, the unique part of the collegiate population. The second part from a collegiate standpoint is you also don't have access to all of the immunizations that they've received. And it's unclear as the team physician for a big student athletic population like that, how quickly you're going to get that. And so making recommendations in terms of vaccines can be made, but follow through and, and having the immunizations available in your training room and doing that kind of thing also is a huge challenge. So Bill, we, we touched a little bit on this before when we were talking about eligibility and pass and fail and things like that. And 
the nice thing about the form is that there are different degrees of what we consider eligible. There are several options on the form as far as how you can clear somebody. Can you talk about those different options and how they may apply in different situations? Well, we've designated five categories for medical eligibility. And of course, there's all activities with no restrictions, so you can do everything. And then on the other end of the scale, there's no participation in any sport or physical activities ever. And in between those, there's just some some grades. Second one is that you can do your activities, but we need to do a little bit more evaluation, like follow up on your blood pressure or something similar to that that isn't life-threatening. And then there's a, a third category, which is you can't participate in anything until we get this other evaluation, treatment, or rehabilitation completed so that we're reasonably sure you're safe. And then the fourth category, which is maybe a, a part of the fifth, is that there's you're eligible for some activities but not others. For those listening who are in my age group, you remember that 4F got you out of the draft, and 1A in uh, medical eligibility gets you out of everything except bowling and uh, and curling and a couple other things. So, you know, it's how you fit on the on the grid for your eligibility that that may limit you to some some degree in in higher physical exertion activities or might limit you in contact activities if it involves uh, concussion and, and things along that line. As both of you being co-editors for the last two editions of the monograph, obviously, you know, we have some low-hanging fruit here of some things that can be done to try and help make it more evidence-based. What what would you guys recommend as far as where to go forward? You know, obviously there's plenty of listeners on here who do sports medicine from all avenues, athletic trainers, physical therapists, physicians. What would you say as uh, would be potentially good topics to research with this? I really think that trying to prove that the pre-participation screening as a standalone sports screening tool is worthwhile related to meeting the goals as stated. I know there's a lot of controversy and there are many sports medicine physicians and primary care providers who would think this is not even worthwhile to do. And so I think if we're going to advocate for this screening as a standalone screen that we think it's reasonable to do it, then we should prove that it's reasonable to do. And whether that shows that there's some components of the history or physical that do reduce the risk of sudden death or do make it safer for somebody to play or do reduce the risk of a person getting injured, we should try and prove it. But I think ultimately what we're going to end up with rather than doing that is to say, yeah, it's nice that we do this, but the main reason we're doing it is because it gets a kid into clinic where they can get all the other things that they need. And I think that's more important probably than the screening is to begin with. And that's why I really think it should be just a small component of a typical well child or adolescent visit. Bill, anything to add? Well, David and I have been doing this together for too long because I couldn't add to what he just said. I think it summarizes the way I look at and approach the exam uh, very well. I'd like to see us as a as a group of physicians and providers start to use the code for sports physical so that we can potentially follow it. But again, unless we get everybody doing it, we're not going to have a, a, a solid denominator and we're not going to have a solid numerator. So it, it may be not very useful data, but big data, I think, is going to be the 
help with the answers, just how are we going to get that? And Bill, you can tell us that code again. I remember it from 20, the, the ICD-9, which was V7 0.3, but I don't remember it now for the new ICD-10. What is it again? It's Z, 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 as the Canadians would say, 0.2.5. Excellent. And I'm amazed that you can remember the ICD-9 code. Oh, I got a lot of ICD-9 cones memorized. It was a hard switch to go into ICD-10. So that is one thing I'm very thankful for the electronic medical record for, is not having to memorize the long, long numbers now. Yeah, exactly. So as we end our podcast, one of the features of our podcast is we do something that's called the Pearl of the Podcast. It's our take-home point or our teaching point. And I'll let you guys each have one here, and we'll start with Bill. My Pearl for the... uh the pre-participation exam is that every patient is an athlete. And if we can approach every patient as an athlete, PE becomes a part of, of well-person care. And we can integrate it into our care and try to get everybody active and use this as a tool to promote exercise as medicine rather than a barrier for some people to participate in sports. David, your pearl? Well, so I tried to, since, you know, full disclosure, Similar to what happens in politics, Dr. Halstead did give us the questions ahead of time, but we didn't communicate about what our answers might be. Bill stated my response eloquently, better than I had it written out. So I'm going to stick with Dr. Roberts' pearl, and I don't have anything to add to it. I just want to thank you, Mark, for having us on tonight. I think this has gone incredibly well, and it's been fun to share with you. Yeah, I appreciate having both of you on. It's it's uh, It's been an honor to have both of you on my podcast today. Ditto for me, and I'm, I'm honored to be here. And always enjoy meeting with David. Well, this has been great. So I'd like to thank Dr. David Bernhardt and Dr. Bill Roberts for joining me today. Lots to think about when talking about the PPE. Be sure to check out our entire podcast library at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. Also follow us on Twitter at pedsportspod. That's peds with an S and sports with an S. Uh, please subscribe to us through your favorite streaming site so you won't miss an episode. And it really is helpful if you leave us feedback and tell your colleagues about us to help get the word out. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.